Isn't it another glorious opportunity to assemble and to gather this morning, even as we are? And it's so good for each of us to appreciate the great blessing of health, the blessing of the ability for us to come together. So many, of course, that you and I may know are ill or not able to be with us, but you and I have been granted that a special privilege, and indeed, how great, how great it is. I would like to thank you for the wishes of... Uh, good birthday and things like that that you have shared my way. I do appreciate that. And it just seems to me that uh, a birthday is just, among other ways, a time to reflect and to think about just how good God's been to me. And certainly I appreciate, though, your wishes you've extended to me. And Denise and I appreciate that so much as well. In James chapter 3, which is where we will be focusing our, our efforts, our thoughts this morning, the first portion of that chapter really brings us to think about a world of iniquity. You might have probably noticed in the reading a moment ago that very phrase is found in verse number 6. Here are some introductory remarks or at least prompting thoughts that I hope will move us on our way to the lesson this morning. Are you aware of the fact that at least according to those who have surveyed it, the average person speaks well over 10,000 words a day? Now certainly, depending on the kind of occupation that you may have, you may speak quite a bit less than that, or you, in some cases, might speak quite a bit more than that. But the fact remains, all of us, it seems, speak a great many words every day. As you and I give thought to the existence of those words and the power that's within us to communicate by words, that will really be our subject this morning. Think about how different is the case for you and me concerning an animal. Now, animals, by instinct, are able to grunt or, in some cases, make other kinds of sounds. But think about the repertoire of your language. You know how to use thousands of words. You know the basic definitions and the proper way to utilize them in language. As you and I have the capability of using them, our lesson today will remind us, James said, that very matter brings with it a world of iniquity. It brings with it the very discussion of our topic today. You'll notice near the bottom or the middle part of that slide. It is in some ways a rather chilling thought to consider the obligation that's ours and the responsibility that goes with the proper use of those words. As we study all of that this morning, may I ask us to notice at the outset a rather penetrating passage in James 1.26. Somewhat near the close of that opening chapter, James rather pointedly made this statement to us. Listen to what it states about the nature of words and the nature of our usage of language. But if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Among all the attributes attached to religiousness, the bridling of the tongue is a vital and necessary part of it. And James says the man who doesn't do that, regardless what he claims, his religion is vain. It's empty, it's useless, it's worthless. Doesn't that point to us very clearly as to the significance of bridling our tongue or watching with great care the language we use? As we study this this morning, let's make several observations. Beginning on this particular slide, I'm going to start with probably what the first aspect of what James mentions for you and me in this chapter. Little but powerful. Would you please read with me beginning in verse number 2. For in many things we offend all. 
If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the body, the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And we'll pause at the close of verse number 5 for just a moment. These comments move us to consider this. Every one of us is blessed with a tongue. That's a part of the creative activity of God. And yet think about how small the tongue is on the whole compared to the other parts of the human body. The brain, the heart, the liver, the pancreas, the skin... The intestines, all of that is so much larger in terms of physical size than is the tongue. And yet, James here tells us the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. I would ask you to comment about some of these features. From the research I was able to do, it appears most would say that the average person's tongue weighs about 15 hundredths of a pound. And again, that's so small compared to the other organs of the body, at least in almost all cases. In regard to that smallness, think though of what it can accomplish. The tongue may be little, and it may be small compared to the overall stature of the body, but consider for just a moment what it is able to accomplish. I would ask you to comment like this. James pointed us toward this conclusion when in verse number 4 he made reference to the helm, the rudder, if you please, of a large ship. If you've ever had opportunity to see a picture or portrait perhaps of a ship and its rudder, maybe with regard to the Titanic you've seen it. Here was a massive vessel, but yet controlled by virtue of what the captain commands, using ultimately what is such a small rudder. You and I know today, again, large ocean-going vessels are moved in terms of their direction on the open ocean of waters by virtue of what's a rather small helm, or at least a small rudder. James says the tongue's the same way. It may be small, it might be little, its weight might be relatively minuscule, but yet nonetheless the fact remains it is exceedingly great in terms of what it can accomplish. I would ask you to perhaps consider this. It's true that there are times the tongue can be used for such remarkable good. By that I mean it can be utilized in a way to promote goodness and honesty and uprightness in the things of God. It can be utilized to employ words and language very persuasively to bring about what's in accordance to God's will. No one would doubt that. Examples in the Bible and factor many. In Nehemiah chapter 1, you and I remember that the city of Jerusalem was a waste. The wall had been broken down many, many years earlier, and yet Nehemiah's countenance was sad. The king said, Nehemiah, why are you upset and why has your countenance become this way? Nehemiah took that as an opportunity to speak about the fact that I love the God of heaven and the, my God's city lies waste. The king heard with kindness what Nehemiah said and gave his approval for Nehemiah to take an expedition and rebuild the wall. He did it. 
But aren't we admirable of Nehemiah's attempt? He used language, he used words, and out of that came such tremendous good. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse number 2, the inspired writer reminds us about the opportunity for good, for truth, for the experience that goes with the very nature of what is in harmony with God's will. But I suppose we all know in the primary context of James chapter 3 is not only can the tongue be used for what's good, it can also bring about such harmfulness, such heartache, such evil. It is to that you and I come to note a quick example, but then most of the rest of the lesson will build upon that very idea. Can you think of some Bible instances of cases where individuals used their opportunity to speak, but they did so and brought about such harm? Well, many might be listed. I chose Absalom. In 2 Samuel 15, beginning in verse number 1, we have especially a reference to one who day by day used the opportunity to speak. He motivated the people against his dad. He said what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. He said what would please their ears, and as a result, he ultimately waged a rebellion against his own father David. Absalom used words in a very evil way. He turned the people's hearts to where they'd ought not to have been. Maybe another example, that general statement of Psalm 34, 13. The psalmist reminded all of us and did so in a continuing case about the evil that can be brought about with improper usage of language and words. As you and I study this even more thoroughly this morning, wouldn't it be fair even at this early juncture of the lesson to remember what the Lord said in Matthew 12? Jesus on that occasion said, "...by thy words thou shalt be justified." And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now if the Son of God made that statement with his knowledge of what the day of judgment would be like, and on that occasion Jesus very pointedly said, your words are going to have a dramatic part to play in the final resting state of yourself. For by thy words thou shalt be justified. And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. You and I know that even idle words will be brought to bear in judgment that day. Isn't it then vital and needful that you and I watch with care what words we use and how we use them? Point number two. As we stated earlier, this chapter seems to cast a strong spotlight and maybe this would be an appropriate time, wouldn't it, to reflect on the general thrust of the book of James. James only has five chapters, and even a reading of it quickly reminds us as to how practical the book is. James doesn't deal in lofty, abstract ideas. He uses discussions to concretely touch you and me daily, every day. Think about some of the ways he does it. Chapter 1, when I face temptation, I ought not never think it's from God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and He doesn't tempt any man. Verse 12. Not only that, in verse chapter number 2, the very grand nature of faith versus works. Faith has to be seen in works. If it's not, it's dead. Chapter 3, the usage of the tongue. We've all learned that's some happening every day. The very way you and I use our tongue, what we say and how we say it, that's going to have a great bearing on our eternal destiny. Chapter 4, 
the appreciation of humility. And furthermore, him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. Chapter 5, patience. All of these are topics we each need so much every day. As we revisit chapter 3, though, let's give some thought to the evil usage of the tongue. I've tried to develop it like this, using as much as possible the very wording that James does. Would you notice verse number 6 and how it begins? And the tongue is a fire. And immediately the tongue is likened unto a fire. To our mind comes immediately the characteristic of fire, doesn't it? You and I know that fire can be so dangerous, so destructive, so deadly. It seems often we see the nature of wildfires that run rampant, burning thousands and thousands of acres, often destroying homes and other domiciles and places of dwelling. Maybe you and I have even seen locally the kind of danger when someone's house burns to the ground and they lose everything that's in it. We certainly hope they're able to escape, but what a sense of loss and what a sense of great destructiveness has been brought about. James says the tongue is a fire. Immediately to our mind comes the fact of what is possible with the tongue. Perhaps secondly, you'll notice, and that's the title of the lesson today, the tongue is immediately likened to this. It says in verse 6, a world of iniquity. May I ask you to notice the actual Greek word that's translated iniquity. That word has behind it the very meaning of what is evil, what is sinful, and what is wrong. The tongue has all of that in its capability. It can speak what's sinful. It can endorse what is not right. It can go about pursuing what ultimately is resistant to and opposing to the Word of God. The tongue can do that. But not only that, as you contemplate this tongue, its description is a fire. Its description is a world of iniquity. Would you note this with me? I'm sure all of us noted in passing as Brother Dennis read verse 6 before us earlier. It says, It defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Were you aware and was I aware of the fact that of all the members of the body, it seems the tongue is likened unto a characteristic of hell as much as any other? And all of us know what hell is like in terms of the Bible's description. We know how evil it is and we know who is there. We know whose sentence shall be there. But yet, look at this statement at the top. Doesn't that immediately imply before you and me that when the tongue is employed improperly... When it's used in the way that's not good, when it's used to, in fact, pursue what is opposed to the things of truth, it is being motivated by and prompted by the very influence of hell. It's the devil's work. It is Satan's activity. When you and I use our tongue to the glory of the devil, when we use it not to defend the truth, but rather to oppose that which is of God, we're employing our tongue in the service of the very opponent to God. We're employing our tongue in the very defense of that prince of the devils. That's a shocking thought in, in a way, isn't it? And yet James says, it is set on fire of hell. 
Now, we noted the very first part of the verse, the tongue was likened to a fire, but yet notice what kindles the fire. When it's used wrongly, hell is what kindles it. Don't you know that Satan has found a tool, namely the tongue, and he, by bringing about the usage of it in ways not good, he finds such delight for his kingdom when the tongue is used in the way it's often employed. Maybe all of that leads us to at least briefly note some commands before we look at the next point. In light of these things, is it any wonder that Paul made this statement? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians 4.29 As often as you and I reflect on that passage, it never ceases to be such a compelling verse. Let no corrupt communication, not any, not a small amount, none. As James refers us to thoughts like that, maybe one more, Ephesians 5, 4. We're reminded on that occasion about how that there ought to again be no improper usage in the way of jesting or other kinds of activities along that line. Uncleanness in whatever way it manifests itself in the tongue should be put at once away from us. How strong a set of thoughts do you think this is about the tongue? It's very telling, isn't it? I suppose all of us find ourselves on a daily basis in great need of examining the way in which we're employing our tongue, how we're utilizing our language, and always striving to ensure it's within the confines of the Word of God. As you can see, our next point, really we're going to build on that for the next few moments. What a great challenge is offered to us as we develop this thought. Probably there is no other matter lifted much more often in our consideration than the usage of our words. And so what a challenge it is for every one of us to try to make sure those words are used correctly. I've asked you to consider the following. The first statement of this next point in our lesson, go back to the very thing that James pointed out to us. James chapter 3, verse number 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Those were the words of the Holy Spirit through James. If any man offend not in word, if you and I, by our development in Christ and our pursuit of maturity in Jesus, if we can arrive at the point where we do not offend in word, James says we've reached the point of maturity. Doesn't that highlight there's certainly a goal that you and I could strive to reach? To arrive at that point in life when we're able to control our language, control our words, and in every sense use them in the way that God would have us to do it. Again, he says, If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man. That word perfect carrying the thought of maturity, completeness, wholeness, Finally, and able also to bridle the whole body. The emphasis, it seems, near the close of that verse is this. If we could arrive at the point where we're able to keep in control the usage of the tongue, then we can control any other part of the body. Doesn't that highlight that controlling the tongue is one of the most challenging things you and I ever face? 
I believe we'd all agree to that, wouldn't we? You find yourself in a circumstance, in a position, a situation, and suddenly words come to your thought, come to mind. They might not be the best words, the most appropriate words. Oh, what a great aspect of maturity it is when we at that moment can control our saying or usage of that kind of language. You'll notice furthermore, the word that's translated here, that word offend, it literally comes from an original word that carries with it the thought of to stumble or to sin. Question, can you and I sin by the words that we either use or fail to use? Can we sin by the way in which we employ them? We know the answer to be yes. Otherwise, Jesus couldn't have made the statement, By thy words thou shalt be condemned in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Surely, in light of those thoughts, we highlight the great pursuit of maturity that all of us should seek to have. How about your control of your tongue and my control of my own? James helps us see here it's important to strive to master that tongue and to not let it be used in an improper fashion and way. You'll notice perhaps nextly that as we think about the maturity that comes with it, what a prized goal indeed that that is. Maybe our development of that would easily take us to this point because James isn't finished and I stopped reading a moment ago but we need to pick up where we left off then. In verse number 7, for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. We are so well, aren't we, to appreciate that the human family has succeeded in taming the animal creatures. And some of them are very large animals like elephants and hippopotamuses and others. Even they have been tamed. Sometimes even animals known for their ferociousness like lions, have also been tamed. But the fact remains, verse number 8, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. After just mentioning the impressiveness which with the human family has tamed animals, he now uses the word but to start verse 8. And that is a word of contrast, a word that brings to bear a distinction to what has just been asserted. But the tongue can no man tame. I would ask all of us to ponder. It would appear then that even as we journey toward perfection and maturity in this flesh, we're always going to be beset by those circumstances that challenge us with the proper use of the tongue. I would submit that if you and I could live to have been Christians for 75 years, we're still going to be faced with an ongoing challenge and there are still circumstances that may greatly present a challenge as to how to use the tongue. James here puts it like this, the tongue can no man tame. I believe it would be fair to say in light of our previous study this morning, notice he says, that is no reason for not trying. Just because we make the statement, well, doesn't the Bible say no man can tame it? That does not mean we mustn't expend the effort to strive to reach the point of maturity and proper conduct and usage of the tongue. Oh, indeed, as we imagine that appreciation, the last two phrases of that verse still read like this. It is an unruly evil 
That word unruly carries with it the thought of restlessness. Have you ever known a person that's restless? They fidget and move about. They just can't be still. They're always on the hunt, it seems, for something to do or to say. The tongue is like that. No wonder the Bible so often encourages us to appreciate silence. In fact, doesn't James do that? Look back to James chapter 1 for just a moment, beginning in verse 19. On that occasion, James puts it like this. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. How true it is that on many occasions, rather than jumping into a foray or using words properly, we'd be much better off to say nothing. To allow that moment to pass, to gather our thoughts, to gather maybe our temper, and then we'd be better equipped to speak properly, or at least speak in, in a way that would be more becoming. Surely in light of those things, you and I know well several Bible examples. As I studied this lesson, these became very meaningful to me as I thought of it in the context of this particular chapter at least. Consider for a moment examples of both Abraham and Moses. Every one of us lift Abraham so very highly. He is often called the father of the faithful. He's reckoned as a friend of God in James chapter 2, verses 24 and following, as well as Isaiah 43. The friend of God, but yet, remember, he lied. On an occasion when he was fearful about his own life, he told his wife, you lie and you tell them that you're my sister. That's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 20. Here was the father of the faithful who on this moment of weakness, he lied. What about Moses? You and I lift Moses so very highly in terms of the fact that he was able to lead the children of Israel. He was handpicked by the God of heaven at the burning bush to bring Israel out of Egypt. And he did it. And all the while, through all those years of difficulties offered to him by the children of Israel. But yet in Numbers chapter 20... God said, you bring water out of the rock. Moses struck that rock, and you may remember he made the statement, shall we fetch you water out of this rock? We know Moses spoke what he should not have said, because later the inspired writer in Psalm 106 verse 33 said, Moses spoke inadvisedly. Under that moment, Moses sinned. Here was a man as great as Moses, a man as great as Abraham, and yet they found occasion whereby the temptation overwhelmed them and they used their language incorrectly. They sinned. If they could, surely I can. If Moses and if Abraham could fall and use language inappropriately on occasion, surely you and I could. No wonder what a reminder it is to appreciate one more time in chapter 3 verse 8. The tongue is an unruly evil. It's restless. Things may go for weeks on end in your life and mine, and maybe the circumstances aren't such that the tongue is used improperly, but then an occasion happens. A situation at work develops or something in the home happens, and suddenly, suddenly words are spoken, and there it is, that unrestless, that restless evil. What about the last phrase of that same verse? 
it says that not only is it an unruly evil, it is full of what kind of poison? Deadly. You and I can just hear James Watkins talk about the deadly poison available in the tongue. We know that certain creatures amongst those things God has made, like certain snakes and other kinds of spiders, have venom or at least deadly poison in them. And yet you and I, according to this, also have something like that in us. Oh, we don't bite somebody physically and inflict a deadly poison in them, but when we use our tongue and lash out against others, we can use our poison and we can hurt them too, sometimes eternally. Amazing, isn't it, to think about what attribute comes to you and me as we contemplate the deadly poison available to us. I would ask you maybe to look at the last few statements of this third point. I stated earlier that just because the Bible says that it's something no man can tame doesn't mean we mustn't try. Jesus told us in Matthew 5.48 to seek for perfection to seek for completion or maturity. And as we journey through this life, we long for that. In 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We might then ask each of us the pertinent question. As a Christian, are you better able to control the tongue today than you were two years ago, one year ago? If you and I can answer yes to that, we're growing, we're striving, we're moving toward the place we need to be. But if we're no stronger in that regard now than we were then, if we're no better equipped now to hold that poison in check now than we were then, that highlights we should strive with effort toward what James reminds us of here. Let us go on to point number four. As you and I think about this, this unruly evil, James makes a very specific development of it. And it's one that really comes so strongly to bear upon you and me, doesn't it? Verse number 9. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. After the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. I suppose it has remained a constant throughout time, hasn't it, that there's this tendency, and it's motivated by the devil, but a tendency to be hypocritical to present an air of piousness and godliness and use the tongue on Sunday morning in the way it ought to be. But then on Monday afternoon and on Thursday night and on Saturday morning to use it in far, far different ways. And that's a constant temptation for all of us, isn't it? When we're surrounded by brethren and we're surrounded by those who love the Lord, we can guard the tongue pretty closely. But what about when we're surrounded by those who don't love the Lord? And what about when we're surrounded by those who are the children of the devil and who are using their tongue so wildly? It's awfully tempting to talk like they do, isn't it? Or at least to use the tongue in ways it ought not to be. The word you and I use for that is hypocrisy. And James, of course, has developed it here. Why don't you and I do the same? In verse number 10... That verse closes by saying, My brethren, these things ought not so to be. 
it ought not be characteristic of us to use our tongue in that way, that hypocritical fashion. These comments at the top of this next slide lead us to notice several comparisons that James makes. You noticed it as I read it just a moment ago. It was there, we notice in verse number 11, does a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? When you and I think about the source of water, we appreciate so much the refreshing water that quenches our thirst. Compare that to water that's sulfur water. Oh, that water's brackish. You just can't hardly stand to drink it. James says that's like this tongue who on one occasion speaks out the nice blessings of God, but then, perhaps not very long thereafter, puts forth this bitter kinds of usage of language. It just ought not be that way, James says. Not only that, look at another example. The fruit of a tree. Verse number 12. Can the fig tree bear olive berries? What about a vine? Does it bring forth figs? Of course, the idea is you and I know the obvious answer is no. And therefore, there should be a consistency in our language. This consistency characteristic of Sundays, but also of Tuesdays and Saturdays and Thursdays. A consistency that helps others recognize that you and I serve the Master. And we intend to use our language to defend His cause and to uplift that which is of His way. Surely, in light of all those things, look at some of the closing reflections in that point, if you would. Jesus taught about this in verses 33 and following of Matthew 12. A highlighted consistency that should be characteristic of your language and mine. And isn't it also true that in Psalm 19:14 we have this unforgettable reminder? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It should be our humble petition and plea that every word used of every day will be acceptable and pleasing to God. And if it isn't, may we strive to make repentance. May we strive to beseech the Lord for forgiveness and, of course, make quick changes. As we come near some of the final observations of our lesson this morning, point number five. I've simply entitled this one, as you can see, the word defile. I'm sure we each noted it as we read that verse earlier, verse number 6. It says on that occasion that the tongue among our members defiles the whole body. Did you wonder what maybe James meant by that? Again, your body has many individual members in it. But yet James says the tongue is able to defile the whole body. How can it do that? Well, very briefly it would seem that the thought is this. Other people gain an immediate impression of the kind of person you and I happen to be by virtue of the words we use and how we use it. They quickly gain a feeling as to whether you're genuine or not, whether you're righteous or not, whether you're a person like what you claim to be or not. And if they quickly judge by your language in mind that our language is different than what it ought to be, it casts a cloud over your whole demeanor. They then can't trust you in anything that you might say. Doesn't that highlight the impressiveness that goes along with genuineness in our language that we say exactly that and do it in a way that God would find pleasing? 
maybe in light of all those things, a whole host of particular sins are thus condemned. I've quickly asked you to list and note some of them. Backbiting. The Bible openly condemns that. Verses like Proverbs 25, 23 and Ecclesiastes 10 absolutely place God's stamp of sinful disapproval on backbiting. So over lunch on Sunday, what's one of our topics of conversation? Was it what so-and-so or sister so-and-so either did or didn't do at church services? Do we tear down their character and crush the nature of what they stood for? Oh, they might have made a mistake. But do we, in fact, allow our tongue to lash and whip them in ways that would be unbecoming of a Christian? It's a good question, isn't it? Or what about the matter of tail-bearing and whispering? Are you and I quick to spread gossip and rumors? Even if we do not know it's true, the Bible encourages us on every occasion to make sure that that which we speak is the truth. And if we don't know if it's only a rumor, it ought not be repeated. In fact, even if it is true, it may not be fitting to share it. Maybe it brings no grace or glory to the situation at all, and hence it better off needs to never be repeated. The Bible admonishes us, doesn't it, to say that which brings grace to the hearers, Ephesians 5.29. And if what we say, even if it's true, doesn't bring grace, does it shed forth the loveliness and the nature of service to God, then we ought just to not repeat it. Isn't that interesting how that, as we think about those things, so many verses call upon us to recognize what evil is brought about by gossip, by rumors, by tail-bearing. Maybe it should also be said that at the top of this slide, the Bible condemns foolishness when we use our tongues to set it about. And it also condemns, of course, the usage of our tongue for cases of falsehood. In making all those statements, then the admonitions that close the lesson are those that I would leave each of us with. What great admonitions, and in fact, what useful, encouraging things. I would state it like this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Don't you love that picture? A word that's properly and fitly spoken is like an apple of gold in a picture of silver. No artist could paint anything better than that. No wonder you and I should strive to speak fit words. And in addition to that, in Proverbs 16, 24, what pleasantness comes with the excellent usage of words. May you and I long for that pleasantness. Finally, how quickly and how constantly should we guard our words. Set a watch, O Lord, on my lips. Psalm 141, verse number 3. A watch, of course, from the ancient time was that individual that would, of course, watch and only when he gave the approval were the gates open because there was no danger around. May you and I appeal to God that He'd set a watch over our lips that we won't speak what we shouldn't. As we close this lesson today, Jesus admonished us in such power about the fittedness of proper words I would hope that as we conclude our lesson, we of course could feel the same. Reminding ourselves and urging ourselves to speak those words that are as they ought to be. Today, as we close this, what about your language and what about mine?
Do you need the Lord to help you set a watch even more powerfully than has been in the past on your lips? If you're a Christian and you've perhaps wandered from the fold of faithfulness, come back to Him today. Petition us that we might pray to God for you to Him and we'd be happy to do it. If you, however, have never become a Christian, you've never known the glorious power of being a child of God, today could very well be the day Jesus commands that you believe Him to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His great name as a Son of God, and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if we could help you in do that, doing that today, it'd be our delight. Surely as we close this lesson today, the practical ongoing nature of the demands of Scripture, the world of iniquity that is the tongue, may we guard it, may we watch it closely. If we could help you in your response to the gospel in a public way today, let us do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.